Church, let's turn again in our Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, as we will finish the book this morning by studying verses 9 through 14. If you're new to the Bible, Ecclesiastes is found near the middle after Psalms, Proverbs, and there you will come to Ecclesiastes. If you're using one of our chair Bibles, you can also find that passage on page 593. As has already been mentioned, this is Kids in Service Sunday, and I just want to reiterate that it is good and right to have children whose feet cannot touch the floor with us in the congregation. Um, This passage has much to offer all of us, including the lives of our little ones, and I pray that its truths are pressed upon each of our hearts, including the children with us today. Let's read together Ecclesiastes chapter 12. We're actually going to begin... In verse 8, absolute futility, says the teacher, everything is futile. In addition to the teacher being a wise man, he constantly taught the people knowledge. He weighed, explored, and arranged many proverbs. The teacher also sought to find delightful sayings and write words of truth accurately. The sayings of the wise are like cattle prods. And those from masters of collections are like firmly embedded nails. The sayings are given by one shepherd. But beyond these, my son, be warned. There is no end to the making of many books, and much study wearies the body. When all has been heard, the conclusion of the matter is this. Fear God and keep His commands, because this is for all humanity. For God will bring every act to judgment, including every hidden thing whether good or evil. This is the word of the Lord. Let's go to the Lord together in prayer and ask for His blessing on our understanding and application of this passage. Father God, we thank You that we receive this text by You, our shepherd, who intends it for our spiritual and eternal good. I pray that by Your Holy Spirit, You would give us illumination of mind, receptivity of heart, and that we would not only be hearers of the word, but doers also. All of this for your name's sake. In Jesus' name, amen. This final section of Ecclesiastes serves as the interpretive lens of the entire book. The end of Ecclesiastes gives us the main point that we should fear God and keep His commands because this is for all of humanity. This is the concise summary that we are gifted with, really, at the end of a complex and perplex book. Like Job, the end of Ecclesiastes informs and clarifies the previous sections of the book. So in these closing verses of the wisdom book of Ecclesiastes, we are instructed on the path to wise living. And I think we see three final instructions for wise living in these verses. First, that we are to be shepherded by God's word. Second, we are to be directed by humanity's purpose. And third, we are to be prepared for final judgment. So the first of these instructions comes in verses 9 through 12, that we are to be shepherded by God's Word. Shepherded by God's Word. This book of Ecclesiastes is written by the teacher, Solomon, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. And in Solomon's first and last words in Ecclesiastes, the teacher has parallel statements. So if you go to the beginning of the book, Chapter 1, verse 2, you see absolute futility, says the teacher. Absolute futility. Everything 
is futile. And in the verse we just read at the beginning, chapter 12, verse 8, we see again, absolute futility, says the teacher. Everything is futile. That word futile, we see occurring nearly 40 times in this book. And it's a statement similar to the phrase, chasing after the wind. And it indicates to us that life under the sun has meaningless components. This is how Solomon begins and ends the book of Ecclesiastes. But notice there is a shift in verses 8 and 9. The shift from first person to third person. So if you see in verse 8, absolute futility, says the teacher. And then in verse 9 it says, in addition to the teacher being a wise man, he constantly taught and so on. And that shift indicates, it signals a new speaker. The narrator who introduced Solomon and introduced the book in chapter 1 verse 1 is now closing the book. And this narrator is going to comment on Solomon as a teacher and wise man. He's also going to present us the book's closing message. So the narrator tells us in verses 9 and following that Solomon taught constantly. Second, he taught thoughtfully. The text says that he weighed, explored, and arranged many proverbs. Solomon sought to find delightful sayings in his teaching. Moreover, Solomon wrote the word of truth accurately. And this is just a small but I think important lesson for preachers and teachers in the room. That as communicators of God's word, we neither want to be the blind leading the blind, nor do we want to be the bland leading the bland. Solomon wanted his words of insight to be words of delight, and so should we wherever possible. But the narrator tells us something else at the end of verse 11, that these sayings are given by one shepherd. And that a traditional interpretation of one shepherd is God, which is why the CSB has shepherd capitalized. This is an important insight that will help us better apply the verses that follow. As we think about fearing God and keeping His commands, there might be a tendency to read this text as a burdensome, weighty, heavy passage. And in one sense, it is. But understanding that these commands come to us by God our shepherd should help us to understand that these words, friends, are for our good. They are meant to protect us. They are meant to bless us. They're to lead us down the road of righteousness and fruitfulness. They are given to us by God For our good, and we ought to receive them as such. We see from the statement that these sayings are given by one shepherd something about the nature of Scripture that Scripture is duly authored. It has human authors, but it has one divine author, namely God. Behind Solomon's writings, the writings of all the biblical writers, including the narrator and Solomon, is God. What is true about Ecclesiastes is true about the entire Bible. There are human authors, and there is one divine author, the Lord God. The words of Solomon are accurate, verse 10, because these words ultimately come to us by the one shepherd, God, verse 12. Forty-five years ago this week, the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy was drafted. That's a statement that has been so helpful to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ the last half century. It's a statement that seminaries like Midwestern Seminary have used to give accountability 
in, in accordance with um, statements like the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. But this statement, the Chicago Statement, has helpful affirmations and denials on the nature of Scripture. Just want to share one of each of those with you. The statement says, We affirm that God in His work of inspiration utilized the distinctive personalities and literary styles of the writers whom He had chosen and prepared. We deny that God in causing these writers to use the very words that He chose overrode their personalities. So amidst Solomon's intentional arranging is God utilizing Solomon's intentionality and thoughtfulness to bring us the very word that we have. We know in the New Testament from verses like 2 Timothy 3.16 and 2 Peter 1, that Scripture is breathed out by God such that He carries human authors along as they write. And because Scripture is breathed out by God, it is truthful in all that it affirms. The doctrine of divine inspiration means that God worked in and upon the human authors in such a way that they said exactly what God Himself intended for them to say, and yet without coercing them. Scripture, in other words, is divine revelation. Beyond what Solomon is doing in the intentional arranging of of these words of Ecclesiastes is what God is intentionally providing for us to know the truth and to live in wisdom. So God in this book and in all the Bible is the ultimate source of wisdom. All the words, the grammar, the syntax that you see, not even just the thoughts of Scripture, all of this is from God. And hence, we want to be shepherded by all of God's Word. All of it is useful, it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correcting us in righteousness that we might be fully equipped. The narrator describes more of the nature of Scripture in verse 11. He says, The sayings of the wise are like cattle prods, and those from masters of collections are like firmly embedded nails. We see in verse 11 that God's word is like cattle prods, or your translation may say goads. And these were pointed sticks used to keep animals going and headed in the right direction. Imagery from, say, Psalm 23 might be coming to mind, that God uses His rod and His staff both to comfort us, but also to protect us and lead us out of the pit. The words of Scripture are like cattle prods. They poke us. They prod us toward righteousness. God's Word is not meant simply to convict us as a double-edged sword, but is also meant to conform us to Jesus' image. Scripture is also, verse 11, like firmly embedded nails. And this could mean a couple of things. It could either refer to nails inserted at the end of cattle prods used for the poking, or it could be like nails driven in the floor that provides something fixed and durable and dependable. Thankfully, because of the whole counsel of God, we don't have to choose which of those renderings is accurate because both of those metaphors are true of God's Word. God's Word is an instrument that God, our shepherd, uses to lead us and to hold us. There's nothing more enduring, nothing more fixed, nothing more permanent than God and His Word. This is what we stake our life on. And friends, these are the words that need to direct us, that need to shepherd us in every aspect of life. We want to receive God's pricking word as His loving direction. These are the words, friends, that quicken us from dullness. 
that amend our pace, that draw us closer to God and His ways. But notice in verse 12 that the narrator also gives a warning. He says, Beyond these, my son, be warned. There is no end to the making of many books, and much study wearies the body. Some have taken verse 12 to oppose study. I do not believe that's accurate. So that's either good news for some in the room or perhaps disappointing for other people who thought that you never had to study again. But we know that God has created us as learners, as thinkers, as students. To be a disciple of Jesus Christ is to follow after Him, to learn from Him. To be a Christian is connected to our learning the ways of God. But here's what verse 12 does oppose. It opposes the view that study automatically leads to wisdom and knowledge of God. You can invest yourself in study to the point of physical weariness, physical exhaustion, and yet not have your soul be strengthened in God. For seminary students in the room, for those who are studying for ministry, or even those who are just in college, or are maybe in uh, some other degree program, whether your studies are explicitly Christian or not, our study is meant to make us more like Christ. Studies should lead us to greater sanctification. And so I believe the warning of verse 12 is amidst all the onslaught of information, amidst all the different things that you could give yourself to in study, make sure you don't overlook where wisdom comes from. It comes from God. It comes from His Word. We know of people who are intelligent, who know more about the subjects than anyone else, and yet they are foolish in their disbelief. You think of the universities across this country that are not training in the wisdom and fear of God. In light of there being endless books, friends, we must know the book. And we must have that book shape our understanding of all the other information out there in the world. This is why Charles Spurgeon said that we need to visit many books, but we need to live in the Bible. We live in a day and age of information overload. There will always be more books made. But the Word of God lives forever. We must know that Word. And amidst us, giving ourselves to study, we should make sure that that study leads us to knowledge and wisdom of God that is ultimately found in the Bible. As I mentioned, we have children with us today, so thankful you're here. And Kids, you, you, you need to know this book. You maybe have seen this book as your mommy and daddy or those over you read this book. It's on your nightstand. It's somewhere else. But there is no book like this book. The reason mommy and daddy or others read it to you is because this is the book from God. This is the book greater and grander than all the other books. This is the book that helps us understand the value of all the other books. So young persons in the room, I just want to encourage you, cherish this book. Receive its message. Trust its authority. Let your family read it to you. Because God speaks to you in its pages. Verse 12 warns us of a type of learning, a type of study that's void of godly wisdom. Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.6 that there's a way to always be learning and to never arrive, to never come to a knowledge of the truth. May that not be so 
as Christ church. We want to be learning and gaining wisdom as we do so. We want to be concentrated on study for the sake of sanctification. Because the Bible helps us not miss the main elements of life and to interpret those elements in God's perspective. So in verses 9 through 12, we see that wise living begins with the understanding that God shepherds us by His Word. He intends it for our good. He intends us to lead us down the path of righteousness by it. And friends, we want to give ourselves to it. But there's a second instruction in verse 13. Be directed by humanity's purpose. Be directed by humanity's purpose. That purpose being fearing God and keeping His Commandments. This is really the central verse of the entire book. The narrator says in verse 13, When all has been heard, when I have assessed all that has been brought before, the conclusion of the matter is this, Fear God and keep His commands, because this is for all humanity. This is related to every subject, every person in the world. This is what you cannot miss if you hear nothing else. Where the book of Proverbs begins, Ecclesiastes ends, with a call to fear the Lord. The narrator thankfully cuts to the chase in verse 13. The narrator gives us the must-read headline, and I believe the, the narrator basically says this, Our purpose in the world centers on God and our response to Him. In short, all of eternity will reflect on whether we fear God or rebel against Him. Whether we respond to God in faith or turn away from Him in disbelief. Thankfully, these parting words of Ecclesiastes make plain in an otherwise somewhat confusing book what should be ultimate in our lives, and that's the fear of God and living for Him. First thing I want to showcase in verse 13 is just the clear link between fearing God and obedience. When all has been heard, the conclusion of the matter is this. Fear God and keep His commands. There's a real lesson for us here in sanctification. That our obedience hardly rises higher than our disposition toward God. Where there is no fear of God, there will be little to no obedience of Him. And of course, without obedience, the New Testament teaches us that we do not, will not, love the Lord. It is appropriate as we think about our own sin struggles to think about obedience and that sin struggle. But I wonder if we've missed this piece about fearing God. In whatever sin struggle you have, here's a helpful question to ask. Why am I not fearing God in this? What's keeping me from having the right disposition toward God in this area? Perhaps that question will be a fruitful one as you think about that and as you discuss with church members. Now in order to break down all the layers of verse 13, we must understand what the fear of God is and what it's not. I think Bible readers in the room know that the fear of God is a pervasive theme throughout the Scripture. But what does it mean? How should we properly understand it? Perhaps one way to approach the fear of God is through Exodus 20. 
Exodus 20, where the people of Israel gather at Mount Sinai. I think this is a helpful window in which we can begin to differentiate what the fear of God is and what it's not. Listen to Exodus 20, verses 18 through 20. Moses writes, Now when all the people saw the thunder and flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of Him may be before you, that you may not sin. Did you notice the contrast at the end of that passage between being afraid of God and fearing God? They're they're seeing the mountain smoking. They're hearing the sounding of the trumpet. They're seeing thunder and flashes of lightning. And appropriately so, they're afraid. And what Moses says is, do not be afraid. Instead, fear God. And that fear of God would lead them to no longer sin against the Lord. The fear of God then, from Exodus 20 is not the dreading of Him as much as it is a humble submission to His loving Lordship. It's not this type of uptight timidity that doesn't trust or respect God, that fears Him coming in the room. No, instead, it's a disposition toward God that wants to honor Him, be with Him, be like Him. When we fear God, He becomes the dominant one in our life. Not the people, not the hardships, not the situations. One way to put it is is that the fear of God makes the Lord big and everything else appropriately smaller. It makes everything in relation to God meaningful and everything opposed to God unimpressive and unappealing. Charles Bridges says that the fear of the Lord is that affectionate reverence by which the child of God bends himself humbly and carefully to the Father's instruction. Scripture says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. When Job feared the Lord, he turned away from evil. Proverbs 28.14 says, Blessed is the one who fears the Lord always, but whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. So from Proverbs 28, we can see that the fear of the Lord is the opposite of hardening one's heart. The unrighteous, as we learn from Romans 3, have no fear of God before their eyes. But in contrast, Uzziah was instructed in the fear of the Lord, which is good news for us today, that we can learn and grow in the fear of God. Perhaps the most helpful verse to wrap our arms around what it means to fear the Lord is from Deuteronomy 10.12, which states that when we fear the Lord, we do so by walking in His ways... By loving Him. By worshiping the Lord our God with all of our heart and all of our soul. So to fear the Lord is another way to talk about loving God. Worshiping God. Walking in His ways. And ultimately, friends, that's why we do fear the Lord. is because we love Him. Because we adore Him. Because we are thankful for His work in our lives and through Jesus Christ. We fear Him because we love the fellowship that we experience with Him. We do trust that His ways are best. And this is why the fear of God separates believers and unbelievers. And it's why in the Old Testament, 
the fear of God was promised to be in every true believer. And I want to show you this from Jeremiah 32 and 33, that the fear of God is a promise and blessing of the new covenant. This is Jeremiah 32, verses 39 through 40. Here's God promising to put the fear of God in every one of His people. He says, I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever. For their own good and the good of the children after them, I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn away from me. What a beautiful, staggering verse that gives us confidence in our own perseverance of faith. The reason why we ultimately will not turn away from the Lord is because the fear of God has been put in you by the Holy Spirit in the gospel. When you were brought from death to life, the fear of God was placed in your heart such that you had a new mind. You had a new nature. You had a new spirit about you. You received Jesus Christ in that moment as Savior and Lord, and you have lived in the fear of God ever since. But in the next chapter, Jeremiah 33, the Lord elaborates more about the nature of this new covenant fear that God instills in His people. God promises, I will cleanse them from all the guilt of their sin against me. And I will forgive all their iniquity of their sin and rebellion against me. And in this city there shall be a name of joy, a praise and a glory before all the nations of the earth who shall hear all the good that I do to them. They shall fear and tremble. Because of all the good and all the prosperity I provide for it. Do you see the imagery there? A people who have experienced forgiveness, cleansing, renewal, grace, are exuberant, joyful in their worship to God, and yet at the same time they are fearing the Lord. They're trembling under His loving Lordship. We see in those verses that believers ultimately have fear of God because of the gospel. Once we were rebellious, once we were turning away from the Lord in every respect, and God has brought us to a different state in mind and heart. And Christians, we want to be eager to preserve that fellowship with Him. As we continue to reflect on verse 13, I couldn't help in this week, but think about the application to children and parents. Children, you have perhaps heard of Ephesians 6, to obey your children in the Lord for this is right and so that it may go well with you. Perhaps at times you think that's the only verse in Holy Scripture, but it is an important one for your stage of life. But as I was thinking about Ephesians 6 and as I was thinking of Ecclesiastes 12.13, I was reminded that parenting is doing this thing. That verse 13 is a kind of job description for godly parenting. That as we fear the Lord and keep His commands, we are seeking to train our children in the same. As parents, it is our God-given privilege to train our children in wisdom, which is the fear of God and the walking in His ways. And friends, here's the sobering truth. A parent's authority and instruction is going to shape shape the child's response to God's authority and instruction. The way that we relate to our children and children relate to us is preparing them to ultimately relate to God. So if the parent's instructions are optional, the child will likely end up viewing God's 
instruction as optional. Which means we want to be training our kids in the fear of God. Not so that our life as parents is easier, but so that our children are blessed. So that they can respond to God in proper fear of the Lord. So they know it is a good thing to keep God's commands. So parents, I know that it can feel like this is difficult, futile work at times. I just want to encourage you to keep going in that work. To keep instructing, to keep praying, to keep pleading that your children would love the Lord and fear Him and keep His commands. We know that our responsibility is limited. We cannot convert our children, can we? We cannot ultimately lead them to heaven. But what we can do is invest our souls in leading these little ones to Jesus Christ. To instruct them day and night in the fear of God and in His commands. Your work is eternally significant. So keep going in that work. And children, my short encouragement for you is that you would understand that one of the main ways that you can fear the Lord and keep God's commands at your age is to honor and listen to those over you. To see that it is a good thing to keep their instruction. So with God's help, do not harden your heart. Do not turn away from your mom and dad, those over you. Know that they love you and are instructing you for your good so that ultimately, when you hear the word of God, you will not turn away from it. Children, you might also be familiar with the first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. I'm sure if I had some of you up here, you could answer the question for us. What is the chief end of man? It's to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Our family was listening to the New City Catechism some this week. And question six asks, how can we glorify God by loving Him and by obeying His commands? Ecclesiastes 12 touches on our chief end. On humanity's purpose. What we have been created for. And we see in verse 13 that humanity's purpose revolves around God. Serving Him. Enjoying life as a gift from Him. In short, it's fearing God and keeping His commandments. That's the primary calling of every human being. It's the whole duty of mankind. To miss this is to miss why you have been made. Church, it's where meaning is found. Amidst a world of futility. The fear of God is how we're able to enjoy life. It's how we're able to laugh and cry. It's how we're able to enjoy the changing of the leaves. And to take in all the opportunities of life and to enjoy our work. All the things that Ecclesiastes gets to. It also helps us understand what to do and where to start in every situation. Sometimes in this difficult life, you don't know what to do next. You're perplexed where life has you. You're disappointed with where you're at or where you're not at. But here we come to Ecclesiastes chapter 12 with an answer of what to do. Where to begin. Fear the Lord. Keep His commands. In every season and circumstances, whether that's blessing or trial, these are your marching orders. Fear God and keep His commands. And that simple but holistic exhortation is meant to be the orbiting factor in our lives. It's meant to help us know how to navigate this world when things are strange and when things are broken. For life to have meaning, 
We have to find that meaning outside of this world in God Himself. That's what Ecclesiastes 12 teaches us. In a world full of oppression, unjust wealth, the mystery of time, pervasive folly, the emptiness of worldly pleasures and possessions, it's hard to know how to move forward. And the narrator here at the end of Ecclesiastes says, you move forward in the fear of God. Oswald Chambers once wrote that the remarkable thing about the fear of God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. There really is something, friends, to orienting your life around the fear of God that frees you up to be who God has created you to be. And although this world can be terrible and its consequences devastating, there is a life worth living in the fear of God. So we've seen that wise living involves being shepherded by God's Word, by being directed by humanity's purpose. And finally, wise living involves being prepared for final judgment. Be prepared for final judgment. Here we come to the last verse of Ecclesiastes, which says, For God will bring every act to judgment, including every hidden thing, whether good or evil. A few months back, we studied the Sermon on the Mount, and one of the themes from the Sermon on the Mount is that God sees in secret. There's, in fact, no hidden things. They're just things that have been concealed that will, in the end, be revealed. In the final judgment, everything will be exposed. What's in the dark will be in the light. The wicked will no longer prosper. The righteous will no longer suffer. You see at the beginning of verse 14, the word for, that relates back to the previous verse. The reason why we must not disregard the fear of God and His commands is that our lives will be measured by those two realities. And fear of the Lord includes knowledge that God will judge all of our actions. The Bible we know is not silent on this final judgment at the return of Jesus Christ. We see in 2 Corinthians 5.10 that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each may be repaid for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Or Hebrews 4.13, no creature is hidden from God, but all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. And even earlier in the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon said in chapter 3, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked. And as we learned a couple of weeks ago from chapter 11 verse 9, we know that for all of these things, God will bring you in to judgment. This judgment, according to verse 14, accounts for everything We have ever thought, said, or done. Good, evil, every hidden thing will be revealed. Now on the one hand, verse 14 should be a proper encouragement. For those of you who are carrying out acts of faith, good works for the Lord, that no one around you fully observes, This verse reminds you that you should keep doing those things. This is why Paul says in Galatians 6, 9, Do not grow tired of doing good, for you will reap at the proper time if you do not give up. God will bring all of those good things into judgment and will reward you for your faith. 
But on the other hand, we see in verse 14 that every act of disbelief, every act of evil, hidden or otherwise, will also be brought into the judgment. That judgment will be perfect and it will be irreversible. It will be just and eternal. And the fact of the matter is, all of us have fallen short of the fear of God and the keeping of His commandments. Which leaves all of humanity standing guilty before a holy God that will carry out this judgment justly and righteously. But thankfully someone greater than Solomon is here. Praise the Lord that the one in whom all treasures of wisdom and knowledge have been made known in Jesus Christ, that good shepherd who laid down his life in the place of sinners and who takes the judgment for those who repent and believe. Although we have not feared the Lord and kept His commandments, there is one who has on our behalf if we receive His fear of God and His obedience in our place. The good news about the gospel is He takes away all of our sin and all of God's wrath against us by dying on the cross. But there's more good news. In Jesus' perfect life, His fear of God, His obedience is given to us By faith, such that we live as Christ lived. So although judgment is certain and hell is real, heaven with God is possible. There is forgiveness for lawless acts. There is covering for sins committed. There is, by the grace of God, a way to never be charged with sin. A way in which our lack of fearing God and our disobedience could be washed away. And we could be given a record of perfect obedience and fear of God. And all of that is only through repenting of our sins and trusting in Jesus. If you're not a believer today, the main command you need to attend to today is repentance and faith. You need to pray that God would give you that gift of fearing God from the heart. And that you would receive Christ and what He has done for sinners. Back in Ecclesiastes chapter 8, there's a passage that clearly distinguishes the destinies of believers and unbelievers. We see in verses 12 through 13, Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God, because they fear before Him. But it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear God. God. The clear promise of those verses is that it will both now and forever go well for those who fear God, but it will not go well for those who do not fear the Lord. It may be going well in your life right now as an unbeliever, but that is so temporary. We learn throughout the book of Ecclesiastes that things on the surface do not tell the full story. And the full story in your life as an unbeliever is that God's wrath remains on you. You've missed life's main point. You've missed the one who created you. You have not submitted to the one who loves you and who intends to shepherd you by Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit and the gospel that provides remission of sins. It will not go well with those who have not feared God. So turn away from your evil. Submit to Jesus Christ in faith and repentance. Receive all that He has done in His life and death and resurrection so that... You can anticipate Jesus' return. 
And for the Christian, know that if it may not be going well with you today, it will go well with you forever. It will go well for those who fear God. You might be familiar with Jonathan Edwards' 70 resolutions. He penned these as a young man. They were intended to guide his life and his commitments. I just want to share with you two of those resolutions that relate to what we've been talking about here. Edwards writes, Resolved that I will live so as I shall. Wish I had had when I come to die. Resolved never to do anything which I should be afraid to do. If I expected it would not be above an hour before I should hear the last trumpet. In other words, let's live knowing the final judgment is a reality. Let's live with resolve by preparing for final judgment. By having a clean conscience. Being at peace with God. Fulfilling what God has created us to do. Stewarding what God has given us for His glory. Friends, as you evaluate this passage in your own life, you might be thinking that you've not had the fear of God. The Bible has not guided your decisions. Jesus has not directed your life. You're not ready for that final judgment. And if those things are rattling in your mind, then I again encourage you to attend to that one command, to believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. If you approach the Lord in humility and fear, He will receive you. He will forgive you. He will cleanse you and fill you with His Holy Spirit. For those who are in Jesus Christ, the only thing to fear is God, but not His coming judgment. That judgment for Christians will be giving us His pleasure and the rewards for living out His commands. That is a life worth living. So here we are at the end of Ecclesiastes. A book that says, although there are no immediate answers to some life, there will be final answers because God has a final judgment. God will do what is right. He will set the record straight. He'll not let the guilty go unpunished. And He will provide sinners through Jesus Christ a way to stand before Him blameless. So Christians, Liberty Baptist Church, continue in the fear of God. Stumble forward in obedience with God's help. Ecclesiastes closes with this summarizing message. Be shepherded by God's word. Be directed by humanity's purpose and be prepared for final judgment. For life under the sun to have meaning, it must revolve around God. His word to us. Our worship of Him. And our meeting with Him on the last day. But, but friends, also know that there's an alternative to those final instructions. There's a way to not live for these things. What would that be? It would be to reject Scripture and its directives. To forget God and His commandments. To ignore eternity and its consequences. May God spare every one of us from that course. Wise living we know from Ecclesiastes and the whole of Scripture that wisdom looks different. In wisdom, church, we want to know what the Bible is for. We want to understand what life is about. And we want to get ready for what the end will bring. That's the closing message of Ecclesiastes. Let's pray.
Father God, we thank you once again for this book that teaches us to fear you and to keep your commands and to wait for eternity. Lord, we pray that all of us would heed this message of the narrator. That we would be instructed in wise living for our good and your glory. We pray again, God, for your Holy Spirit's enabling to slow down and to think about this message so that our lives and those around us benefit. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.